You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the January 22nd reading of Sports News. My name is Philip Bradbury. Well, as usual, there's a lot going on in sports, both on and off the field. We have the NFL Playoff Conference title games are set. There's some coaching interviews, and a coach was hired in the revolving NFL coaching carousel. Got some baseball news, and we have a new record for the most wins in NCAA hoops history. So let's jump right in. The NFL Playoff Conference title games, the Lions versus the 49ers and the Chiefs versus the Ravens. This article is written by Stephen Holder and Seth Walder on January 21st yesterday, and it appeared on ESPN.com. All four divisional round games are in the books as the NFL playoffs keep rolling along, and next weekend's conference championship game matchups are set. In the NFC championship game, the Detroit Lions will play the San Francisco 49ers in San Francisco for a chance to go to the Super Bowl. On the other side of the bracket, the Baltimore Ravens will host the Kansas City Chiefs in the AFC Championship game. To get you ready for the two-game slate, Stephen Holder picked out the biggest thing to watch in both matchups, and Seth Walder explored how all four teams can win to reach Super Bowl 58. Game lines are via ESPN Bet for the AFC Championship game. The number three Kansas City Chiefs at the number one ranked Baltimore Ravens. That will take place next Sunday, January 28th at 3 o'clock Eastern Time, which will be 1 o'clock Mountain Time, and will be on CBS as well as Westwood One Radio. So what to know? The ideal ingredients for winning in the postseason would seem to be an elite quarterback and an elite defense. That brings us to the Ravens, just the fourth team since the 1970 merger to have a first-team All-Pro quarterback and the number one scoring defense in the NFL. The three previous teams to do so were the 1972 Dolphins, the 1978 Steelers, and the 1996 Packers, and all went on to win the Super Bowl. That's the combination of factors working in the Ravens' favor for next Sunday. With quarterback Lamar Jackson coming off a historic performance against the Texans, he had two rushing touchdowns and two touchdown passes, and the Ravens' defense limited Houston to its second lowest yardage total of the season with 213. This seems like a truly complete team. But don't expect the Chiefs to be the least bit phased by any of this after overcoming the Bills on the road in another memorable matchup between the budding rivals. After being treated to one premier quarterback matchup in Patrick Mahomes versus Josh Allen yesterday, the AFC playoffs will serve up another in the championship game when Mahomes and the Chiefs visit Jackson and the Ravens. The Chiefs are 3-2 and two in AFC title games with Mahomes under center, but there's a key difference this season. The Chiefs have arguably the best defense in the Mahomes era. They finished the season second in scoring defense and yards allowed. No Kansas City team has been higher than seventh in either metric 
in Mahomes' tenure. And that is a comment from Holder. So why the Ravens will win. Both sides of the ball are on fire for Baltimore. Let's start with the defense, where the Ravens allowed zero offensive touchdowns in the divisional round against the Texans. The Ravens' defense didn't blink against Houston the way the Browns did. was dominant, particularly against the run, where Baltimore allowed a negative .29 EPA per play. It's nothing new for the Ravens' defense, which now ranks first in EPA per play over the course of the season, the playoffs um, included. Despite the name brand of the Chiefs, the reality of this matchup is that Baltimore's defense has been much, much better than the Kansas City offense. The Chiefs were ranked 10th in EPA per play entering Sunday. Backing up a few paces here, I had to look up what EPA actually meant, and it is the expected points added. And it's a measure of the success, which defines the value of each play by the effect that it has on the offense's likelihood to score. So for every play, EPA is attributed equally to both teams, and the metric is fairly reliable in identifying the best team's in football and so as an example a typical range is negative 0.2 a bad offense and a good defense to 0.2 which is a good offense and a bad defense all right so continuing on despite the name brand of the chiefs the reality of this matchup is that baltimore's defense has been much much better than the kansas city offense the Chiefs were ranked 10th in EPA per play entering Sunday. Offensively, the Ravens are on almost as strong of a roll. They were good all season and kicked it up a notch in the playoffs. Jackson posted a 94 QBR rating against Houston, and on his run plays or dropbacks, the Ravens accrued .41 EPA per play. In other words, every five of Jackson's plays added two full points to the Ravens' expected scoring margin. The chief defense will provide more resistance than Houston did. Kansas City ranked 11th in EPA per play allowed against opposing quarterback scrambles or runs. And, and overall, the Chiefs are simply weaker against the run, ranking 26th in EPA per opponent designed carry. It would be another big day for Jackson, and that came from Seth Walder. So why the Chiefs will win? It's still Mahomes' with the best defense that he has ever had. The Chiefs still have Andy Reid calling plays, a breakout receiver in Rasheed Rice, and an offensive line that protects Mahomes. And tight end Travis Kelsey just had two touchdowns in the divisional round. Despite all that's gone wrong this season, most notably the receivers' league worst 5.7% drop rate entering Sunday and their inability to support Mahomes and the offense at an elite level, all of the above means the Chiefs have a chance to score plenty of points in the AFC Championship game. Plus, while the Ravens led the league in sacks in the regular season, Mahomes simply refuses to take them. His 3.9% sack rate 
and 13.8 sack to pressure rate ranked second in the NFL behind Josh Allen. And while Buffalo moved the ball at will at times against the Chiefs, the long view of the defense that it is still one of the best groups in the league, ranking fourth in EPA per play allowed. In the end, Kansas City kept the Bills out of the end zone as well. The Chiefs are underdogs, and deservedly so, but they just beat Baltimore's biggest challenger in the AFC. They can beat the Ravens themselves as well. All right, turning to the NFC Championship game now. The number three-ranked Detroit Lions will be at the number one-ranked San Francisco 49ers. This game is also on Sunday, January 28th, and will be at 6.30 p.m. as the kickoff. That's Eastern time, so it will be 4.30 Mountain time. It will be on Fox as well as Westwood One Radio. So here's what to know. The 49ers haven't won a Super Bowl since 1994. To put that in perspective, quarterback Steve Young threw three touchdown passes to Jerry Rice in that Super Bowl 29 win over the Chargers. Still, the Niners will be making their seventh appearance in the NFC Championship game since 2011. San Francisco has gone two and four in those games, three of which had come under coach Kyle Shanahan since 2019. Shanahan has a chance to pass Bill Walsh for the best postseason win percentage in club history with a win over Detroit. As for quarterback Brock Purdy, he's trying to build a legacy of his own, and winning this game would go a long way after he was knocked out of the conference title game with an elbow injury last season. But the Lions are also trying to rewrite the history books. By winning two playoff games for the first time since 1957, They've already done something most Lion fans have never personally witnessed, and the Lions are doing it with an explosive offense that figures to test the 49ers' elite defense. Orchestrating it all is quarterback Jared Goff, who is one of the best stories in the NFL season. After powering the Lions with 287 passing yards and two touchdown passes in Sunday's win over Tampa Bay, the Rams' cast-off has a chance to go to his second Super Bowl. If he takes the Lions to Las Vegas, they might just build him a statue in the Motor City. And that's from uh, Stephen Holder. Why the 49ers will win? Yes, Purdy's performance in the divisional round against the Packers when he posted a negative 6% completion percentage over expectation for the NFL next-gen stats caused some concern. But the best way to judge a team is with a long lens. And when we do that, the 49ers still look pretty menacing. And let's think about the matchup here. The 49ers have the most efficient passing offense in football. What is the Lions' big weakness? Weakness? Depending, defending the past is their biggest weakness. Entering Sunday, the Lions rank 30th in EPA allowed per opposing dropback. San Francisco's plethora of offensive playmakers will be a nightmare for Detroit, and while the Lions' offense is also effective, they don't have near the same firepower. Plus, the 49ers have stars galore on defense to counter. Edge rusher Nick Bosa and defensive tackle Javon Hargrave lead a pass rush that can get pressure on the quarterback despite blitzing only 20% of the time, which is the sixth lowest in the NFL. 
and cornerback Shavarius Ward and linebacker Fred Warner should be able to at least mitigate Detroit's Amon Ross St. Brown and Sam Laporta. So why the Lions will win? The Lions have two major factors working for them in the NFC Championship game. First, a shaky Purdy. Until his game-winning drive against the Packers, Purdy looked pretty plenty fallible. He has led an ultra-efficient offense over the course of the season, but if he's rattled at all, that gives Detroit hope. Second, one thing you can do against the 49ers is run on them. That plays right into the Lions' strengths as they rush for 114 yards against Tampa Bay. They lean run-heavy and with the 11th highest run rate over expectation per NFL next-gen stats, and yet they are the sixth most efficient running team in the league in terms of EPA per play. And that's thanks to strong play from David Montgomery and Jamar Gibbs. Finally, the 49ers are one of the most efficient pass defenses because of their ability to defend deep throws, ranking third in EPA per play allowed on attempts of 20 or more air yards. But that's a wasted skill against Detroit, which throws deep only 7% of the time, the lowest rate in the NFL. The Lions will need the ball to bounce their way a few times, but they certainly have hope. So, some exciting football coming up. Recapping, the Kansas City Chiefs and Baltimore Ravens game will be on Sunday at 3 o'clock Eastern Time, and that's 1 o'clock Mountain Time, be on CBS television as well as Westwood One Radio. And for the Lions and the 49ers, that also on Sunday, it will be 6.30 p.m. Eastern, which is 4.30 p.m. Mountain Time. And it'll be on Fox Television and also on Westwood One Radio. So lots of exciting football coming up. The NFL coaching carousel continues. This article by Michael Rothstein, he's a staff writer for ESPN, and it came out on January 15th on ESPN.com. The Atlanta Falcons have officially expressed interest in the coach who handed the franchise the most painful loss in team history. The Falcons announced that they have interviewed former New England coach Bill Belichick for their head coaching vacancy, the first known interview done by Belichick since he and the Patriots mutually parted ways last week. Belichick, who is 71, has been a head coach for 29 seasons, 24 in New England and 5 in Cleveland, compiling a 302 wins against 165 loss record and collecting six Super Bowl titles with the Patriots. One of those Super Bowl victories came against the Falcons after New England came back from a 28-3 deficit in Super Bowl 51 to win 34-28 in overtime. It was a moment that was mentioned in a wide-ranging news conference with Falcons owner Arthur Blank and CEO Rich McKay on January 8th after the team fired Arthur Smith following three seasons as Atlanta's coach. Blank and McKay, who are leading the search to replace Smith, also were asked whether they would consider or value prior head coaching experience in making their next hire, and neither McKay nor Blank ruled it out. Where you look should be incredibly broad and should include head coaching experience. There's something to head coaching experience, McKay said but it has to be the right head coaching experience. 
And that is not easy to find because it's not been easy for me to find over the years. But I think if you find one, should you consider it? Absolutely. Why wouldn't you? Belichick's name was mentioned during Atlanta's news conference by Blank, as was Pittsburgh's Mike Tomlin, Los Angeles's Sean McVay, and San Francisco's Kyle Shanahan. Not as potential candidates for the job, Belichick was still employed by New England at the time, but as examples of continuity, having a long-term vision and seeing that vision through. Few, if any, in the NFL had done it like Belichick did in New England. When Belichick and the Patriots owner Robert Kraft announced that Belichick would no longer be coaching the team, Kraft seemed to indicate that Belichick would want to continue coaching. Monday's announcement was the first clear indication that this is the case. It'll be difficult to see him in a cutoff hoodie on the sideline, Kraft said last week, but I'll always wish him continued success except when it's against the beloved Patriots. Belichick is third all-time in regular season wins with 302, behind George Hallis with 318 and Don Shula with 328. Belichick also is the NFL's playoff wins leader with 31, eight ahead of Andy Reid. Combined, Belichick has 333 wins, 14 behind Don Shula's 347. Since Blank took over as Falcons owner, he has never hired a coach with prior NFL head coaching experience. Blank and McKay are leading the search with input from general manager Terry Fontenot. Belichick is the sixth candidate the club has announced as interviewing for the job, along with Baltimore assistant head coach Anthony Weaver, Baltimore defensive coordinator Mike McDonald, San Francisco defensive coordinator Stephen Wilkes, Carolina defensive coordinator and Cincinnati offensive coordinator Brian Callahan. So we'll keep you posted as that moves along. But there is some movement. The Las Vegas Raiders have removed the interim tag and have named Antonio Pierce as their head coach. This article by Paul Gutierrez, he's a staff writer for ESPN, came out on January 19th on ESPN.com from Henderson, Nevada. Antonio Pierce was officially announced as the new full-time head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders on Friday. Raiders owner Mark Davis elevated Pierce from linebackers coach to interim coach following the Halloween night firings of coach Josh McDaniels and general manager Dave Ziegler and Pierce, along with interim GM Champ Kelly, changed the culture of the Raiders locker room overnight. Following the Raiders season ending 27-14 victory over the Denver Broncos, Davis told ESPN that he was really excited about the job Pierce did in leading the team to a 5-4 finish after he took over. Besides winning, finishing with a winning record, the Raiders also went 3-1 in the AFC West under Pierce, scoring a franchise record 63 points against the Los Angeles Chargers and beating the Kansas City Chiefs at Arrowhead Stadium for only the second time since 2013. In announcing Pierce as their new head coach, the Raiders crossed out the word interim in a post on X. When Davis first promoted Pierce, who had never been a head coach above the high school level, Davis told ESPN that he did not want Pierce to necessarily coach so much as lead and delegate. 
The Raiders played a cleaner, stingier, and more focused game after Pierce took over. Consider this. Under Pierce, the Raiders led the NFL in fewest points allowed per game with 16, defensive touchdowns with only four, and the fewest penalties, 31, while having the 10th most takeaways at 14, being fourth in point differential with 62, and time for the third most sacks at 30 from week nine through the end of the season. Davis also said at the time that Pierce understands the culture of the Raiders, and that's important to me. Growing up in Compton, California, outside of Los Angeles, a huge fan of not only the Raiders when they called L.A. home, but also local seminal rap group N.W.A., which was known for wearing Raiders gear, immediately changed the culture to a player's first atmosphere. A mini basketball hoop was immediately stalled in the locker room, and the music playlist for practice was changed to include the stylings of N.W.A., whose radio-friendly versions of songs were played in an elegant stadium during pregame warm-ups, while the Friday team danced off to kickoff practice returned. And after home victories, the Raiders lit celebratory guitar cigars in the locker room. Pierce also benched high-priced but oft-injured veteran quarterback Jimmy Garoppolo in favor of rookie Aiden O'Connell, with Pierce calling the youngster his BFF on more than one occasion. Lackadaisical losses, though, came against the Vikings at, at, at Alicant Stadium and at the Indianapolis Colts, keeping the Raiders out of the playoffs. So they lost against the Vikings 3 to nothing. That's probably the lowest scoring game in probably NFL history. And the loss to the Colts was only by a field goal, 23-20. to 20. But both those losses kept the Raiders out of the playoffs. Raiders players brought into Pierce's leadership style with all-pro wide receiver Devontae Adams saying his vote was for Pierce and that he would run through a wall for that man. Three-time Pro Bowl edge rusher Max Crosby, who had a career-high 14-and-a-half sacks this season, also voiced support for Pierce. It's legendary, Crosby said after the season finale. When you have the right culture, a guy like AP that embraces the history of the Raiders, it's special. A ton of legends consistently, uh, a ton of legends visit consistently because the amount of respect they have for him. So it makes you, as a player, want to go out there and show who you are. You know what I mean? You want to be at that level one day. Pierce also garnered support from Raider alumni, such as Hall of Fame defensive back Charles Woodson, who pointed to Pierce being a former linebacker in the NFL and two-time Super Bowl champion quarterback Jim Plunkett, who observed the players responding to Pierce in quick fashion. A pro bowler himself for the New York Giants in 2006, Pierce played nine seasons in the NFL with Washington from 2001 to 04 and the Giants from 05 to 09. He was a key member of the Giants team that beat the then-undefeated New England Patriots in Super Bowl 42. After finishing 8-9 overall, though, the Raiders only had two winning records and two playoff appearances after the 2016 and 2021 season since appearing in Super Bowl 37 in January of 2003. Pierce is the seventh head coach, regular and interim, 
that Davis has hired since assuming control of the franchise upon his Hall of Fame father, Al Davis's passing in 2011, along with Dennis Allen, Tony Sperano, Jack Del Rio, John Gruden, Rich Biasca, and Josh McDaniels. While there is no word yet on the status of Kelly, he, he is a leading candidate to return as general manager. Pierce, who is 45, was asked in his season-ending news conference about the head coach job. I will never use the word deserve, he said. Hopefully, I've earned it. And there is a retirement in the works here. Philadelphia Eagles star center Jason Kelsey told his teammates on Monday night's postseason locker room that he is retiring, says league sources hold Adam Schefter. This was written on January 16th. And it came out on ESPN.com and in newspapers everywhere. Kelsey, who was 36, was visibly emotional at the end of the Eagles' 32-9 wildcard playoff loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The six-time All-Pro and future Hall of Famer has considered retiring in recent seasons, but this time it will happen. Kelsey declined to talk to reporters in the locker room after the game, just saying, no guys, not today. I love him, Eagles coach Nick Cerrani said. He's special, and I love him. He's one of the most special guys that I've ever been around. He's always got a place here. Kelsey played this season on a one-year contract and was set to become a free agent in March. A sixth-round draft selection in 2011, Kelsey has played his entire 13-year career with the Eagles and has been one of the key leaders for a team that has made six postseason appearances and two Super Bowl trips over the past seven seasons. He's a legend in the city, really in the league, says Eagles quarterback Jalen Hurts. I don't want to do a disservice to him and the things that he's been able to do and overcome. His journey to where he is now didn't come easy. It's been a long, long time for him, and every year since I've been here, it's been, are you going to come back? But he knows how much I love and appreciate him. He knows how much I've learned from him. He'll forever have a special place in my heart. Eagles right tackle Lane Johnson told reporters that Kelsey has hinted to teammates that this would be his last season. I love him. He's one of the best to ever play the game, Johnson said. The things he can do on the football field athletically, I don't think we'll see another one like him for a long time. Kelsey is the fifth center in NFL history with at least six All-Pro selections. The other four are Jim Otto, Bulldog Turner, Dermonte Dawson, Jim Ringo, and all are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. This is so sad. This article came out uh, in the Associated Press on January 10th, and it appeared in publications worldwide from Miami Gardens, Florida. Police in South Florida say that a man fatally shot a 30-year-old Buffalo Bills fan during an altercation near Hard Rock Stadium after the Bills defeated the Miami Dolphins in the final regular season game. As Dylan Brody Isaacs and his friends were returning to their vehicle after the game on Sunday night, they had an altercation with the driver of another vehicle a few blocks from the stadium. 
According to the Miami Gardens police, the driver pulled out a gun, fired shots at Isaacs, who died at the scene. The man then fled in an older model Honda Accord, which was located in Palm Beach County the next day. The vehicle was seized as part of the investigation. Detectives have identified and interviewed a suspect, but that person's name was not immediately released. The investigation is ongoing. A GoFundMe page has raised nearly $90,000 to cover the cost of a funeral for Isaacs and for transporting his body to Six Nations, the largest First Nation reserve in Canada. Isaacs lived in Hollywood, Florida, according to a Facebook page. So if there's an update on that, we will certainly let you know. That's pretty tragic, just being a fan. Well, rugby and football are way different. This article is written by Tom Hamilton. He's a senior writer for ESPN, and it came out on January 16th. One of rugby's union's brightest stars, Luis Riz Zamit, has decided to leave the sport and pursue a career in the NFL, joining the league's international player pathway. The announcement came just minutes before Wales announced that their squad for the forthcoming Six Nations, one that Reese Zamit would usually be a key part of. But moments before Warren Gatlin announced his squad, Reese Zamit announced on his Instagram account that he was stepping back from the sport to pursue his NFL dream. Reese Zamit, who is 22, is by far the biggest rugby star to try to crack the NFL via the pathway and he will journey to Florida at the end of the week to join the program. Gloucester rugby has been a huge part of my life, Reese Zemit said on Instagram. From the start at Hart Puri College and my first professional rugby contract with Gloucester in 2020, to my Wales and Lions caps, the club has been central to my development as a player, and I'm so grateful for their support. I will always be very proud of my time at King's Home and want to particularly thank the incredible fans who make the club so special. Also, to my teammates, to Coach George Skivington and CEO Alec Brown, thank you for giving me such special memories and for supporting the next stage of my career. I've had the incredible honor of playing rugby for my country, which as a proud Welshman, I've never taken for granted. However, I believe that this is the right time for me to realize another professional goal of playing American football in the United States. Those opportunities don't come around very often. Reese Zemit, who played on the wing and fullback, won 31 test caps for Wales, scoring 14 tries, and in 2021 was part of the British and Irish Lions Tour of South Africa, where he was the youngest to be selected for that tour since 1959. He was one of the most lethal wingers in the Gallagher Premiership with Gloucester, but with his contract up at the end of the season, he has finished his time there with the club agreeing to release him early. Several other rugby players have tried to break into the NFL, Christian Wade, Alex Gray, Christian Scott, Scotland Williamson have all attempted it. The NFL's international player pathway began in 2017 with success stories such as Philadelphia Eagles tackle Jordan Malata from Australia and Las Vegas Raiders fullback Jacob Johnson from Germany carving out places on NFL rosters. 
The news will come as a blow for Gloucester, but they have given Reese Zemit their blessing to try to achieve his dream of playing in the NFL. We understand the size of the opportunity before Zam and his lifelong ambition to play in the NFL, says Gloucester CEO Brown. Whilst we are naturally sad to see him leave, ultimately we are not able to dissuade him from taking an opportunity of this magnitude with the NFL. We remain very proud of the role Gloucester Rugby has played in helping to develop, to develop him into the world-class player that he has become and we wish him the very best in the U.S. He will be always welcome at King's home. So good luck to Luis Riz Zemet, and we will obviously keep you posted on that as well. Turning now to college football, this article is compiled by the ESPN staff on January 12th, and it appeared on ESPN.com. Why Alabama chose Kalen DeBoer as its new head coach. Kalen DeBoer has a tough act to follow. Alabama will name DeBoer its next head coach, sources told ESPN, replacing Nick Saban and his more than 200 wins and six national titles at the school. DeBoer, who is 49, has a 105 wins and 12 losses as a head coach and was named the AP Coach of the Year at Washington last season on his way to the national championship game. Now he must transition into a tougher-than-ever SEC that adds Texas and Oklahoma next season. Why did the Tide chose DeBoer to lead the next era of Alabama football? And what's next for Washington? We will answer some of the most pressing questions about the move. Why did Alabama chose DeBoer? Over and above everything else, Alabama wanted a proven winner, and DeBoer has won everywhere he has been. He has won 11 or more games in seven of his nine seasons as a head coach. He took Washington to a Pac-12 championship and the college football playoff national championship in his second season at UW. Two of the other guys mentioned prominently in the Alabama coaching search was Dan Lanning and Steve Sarkazian. They were a combined 0-5 against DeBoer over the past two seasons. DeBoer's offenses were electric. The Huskies ranked 13th nationally in scoring this season and 6th in 2022. They averaged at least 36 points per game in both seasons. And look at the way quarterback Michael Penix Jr. blossomed under DeBoer at Washington. It was important for Alabama to get someone with vast head coaching experience. DeBoer has been a head coach in the Pac-12 at Fresno State and in the Division II ranks with Sioux Falls. What would be the biggest challenge for DeBoer? Roster retention is going to be a priority number one. A mass exodus of players to the portal could be crippling, especially since the ability to backfill won't happen again until the portal reopens for non-graduates in the spring. Even then, most of the big names already made their moves, but setting aside that immediate concern, far and away the biggest challenge will be the expectations, not just wins and losses, but constantly being compared to Saban and how he did things. While there's no tower a la Bear Bryant to take down, DeBoer will have to walk a fine line implementing his process without appearing to step on Saban's capital P process. Change too many things too quickly, and the fan base and boosters might revolt. 
And in today's game of NIL, which is name, image, and likeness, you have to keep the donations coming. The board needs to ensure that the elite players who just signed want to stay and would fit into his system. The key member of that class is five-star quarterback Julian Sayan, who was the number one quarterback and the number three overall prospect in the cycle. For depth, talent, and competition, keeping Sayan on the roster is imperative. He could be the quarterback of the future and make the transition a lot easier for DeBoer. He can show Sayan the success that he had with Michael Penix Jr. and try to convince Sayan that he could do the same for him. The next order of business would be evaluating the roster and ensuring that any player that he wants to stay knows that they are wanted. The players have a 30-day window to enter the transfer portal and explore other options. The players at Washington would also have a 30-day window to enter the portal since DeBoer left, so if there are some that he thinks could help him win at Alabama, he could try to bring them with him. Alabama's roster is already filled with stars and elite players, so there shouldn't be much of a weeding out process. He's inheriting a team that won an SEC championship and made it to the college football playoff, so his main goal needs to be retention and maintaining status quo while adding players to supplement an already excellent roster. What is Saban's new role at Alabama, and how does it affect the board? Saban's role and or his presence will be with the entire university, not just the football program. His office is going to be at Bryant-Denny Stadium, which means that he won't be chatting up coaches or players in the football complex and poking his head in the film room. Besides, that's not his style. Saban wants no part of being the former coach looking over somebody's shoulder, but will always be open to giving his advice when asked. What he wants is to be a resource any way that he can for the entire university in any number of ways. He has made it clear how much Alabama means to him and his wife, Terry, but he's not going to be hanging around all the time. And the reality is that whoever the new coach was going to be in Alabama, Saban's immense shadow was always going to be lurking whether Saban was physically present or not. Should Alabama expect to contend for a national title next season? The expectation won't change just because Saban's gone. And next season, why should it? Assuming the key players from last season don't bolt for the portal, and that's Jalen Milrow, Caleb Downs, Deontay Lawson, and Hayden Proctor, just to name a few, this team still has what it takes to contend for an SEC title. If not for defensive breakdowns late against Michigan, the Tide hold on to win the Rose Bowl and maybe send Saban out with a championship. And remember, the playoff is expanding, so even without a conference championship next season, you can still get in. But the challenge will be significant, setting aside the difficulties that will accompany a coaching transition. Georgia and LSU aren't going anywhere. Ole Miss is making a big push, and Texas is coming into the conference with title expectations of its own. So what should Washington prioritize in its search, coaching search? For the University of Washington, it's simple. Ryan Grubb. Ryan Grubb should be elevated from offensive coordinator to head coach immediately. If you are reading this and the new UW athletic director 
Troy Dannon hasn't already hired Grubb to replace DeBoer. He's moving too slowly. DeBoer deserves all the credit he's received for what he's accomplished in coaching, but Grubb has been with him nearly every step of the way at Sioux Falls, Eastern Michigan, Fresno State, and then at the University of Washington. When Washington players talk about the offense and why it's been so successful, Grubb is the one that they describe as the mad genius or with some other kind of similar, similarly flattering name. He was the play caller. He was the one who worked most closely with quarterback Michael Penix Jr., and he should be options A, B, and C to replace DeBoer. This isn't the same as Jimmy Lake inheriting the program from Chris Peterson. Grubb is ready. Building a staff will be a challenge because DeBoer and Grubb will inevitably want to lean on some of the same guys, but there will be a line of talented coaches who will want to be in Seattle. Did DeBoer do enough to set up University of Washington for sustained success as it enters the Big Ten? With lax transfer rules in college football now, what's left behind doesn't matter as much as it once did. In theory, DeBoer's exit could lead to an exodus. That's the way the sport is structured. What he does leave behind is an energized fan and donor base that, after getting a taste of the good life, should be more willing to help strengthen the school's NIL opportunities than two years ago. If it wasn't already understood, DeBoer showed UW that has the infrastructure to compete at the highest level in the sport, and that goes a long way to recruiting. With most of its key players set to depart, there was already an expectation that UW was going to take a step back next year as it moves to the Big Ten. But that was just part of the natural ebb and flow for a program that leaned on so many veteran players. What is DeBoer's first order of business regarding the roster? DeBoer has some positives working in his favor when it comes to the roster. The first is that we just went through the early signing period and all but six of Alabama's original commitments enrolled early. Classes have already started at Alabama, which means the prospects in the 2024 class who enrolled early can't be released from their national letters of intent. They would have to transfer to leave. To do that, players would use their one-time transfer, but also need to get admitted and enroll at a new school. That could prove difficult with different institutions having different schedules and players might have to wait until summer to enroll. And we thought coaching in the NFL was a carousel. Continuing on with college football, NCAA president says that Michigan earned their football national title fair and square. This was written by ESPN staff writer Dan Murphy on January 10th from Phoenix, Arizona. NCAA President Charlie Baker said Michigan's football national championship was earned fair and square and that his organization's unusual decision to share information about cheating allegations during the season could help to eliminate doubts about the legitimacy of the Wolverines' title run. Baker said the NCAA decided to alert both Michigan and the Big Ten simultaneously this October after it received very compelling information that the Wolverines were involved in a broad and unusual sign-stealing scheme. Those conversations resulted in the Big Ten suspending coach Jim Harbaugh for the final three games of the regular season. 
They also prompted Michigan analyst Connor Stallions to resign and the team to fire assistant coach Chris Partridge in November. Bringing those allegations into the public domain, Baker said, allowed Michigan and its opponents to adjust and erase any potential unfair advantages for the Wolverines during the final month of the regular season and throughout the postseason run. Michigan completed its 15-0 season by beating five ranked opponents in its final six games, all of which came after Thalians resigned. I don't regret doing it because sitting on that information, given the comprehensiveness of it, I think we would have put everyone, including Michigan, in an awful place, said Baker. At the end of the day, no one believes at this point that Michigan didn't win a national title fair and square, so I think we did the right thing. The NCAA's investigation into Michigan's alleged cheating scheme remains open. The football program is also under investigation for alleged recruiting violations for which Harbaugh served as a university-imposed three-game suspension at the start of the 2023 season. Harbaugh and the team could receive additional sanctions for both pending cases. Baker said that he did not know what those penalties might be or when they would arrive. He said the NCAA infractions team is working on finding ways to move faster with its process. In the sign-stealing case, Big Ten Commissioner Tony Petiti had to employ a controversial interpretation of the league's sportsmanship policy to levy any punishment during the season in which alleged violation occurred. We do have a series of discussions going on with the infractions folks about whether or not we can't do something to speed up the pace of our investigations. Certainly in a case like this, we'd like to be able to move a lot more quickly, Baker said. Baker said he also hopes the investigation will pick up speed now that the season is over and the Michigan coaching staff will be more readily available to speak with investigators. I get that people have a lot on their plate, Baker said. Meanwhile, Harbaugh declined to answer questions about his future with Michigan in the hours after their championship victory, as multiple NFL teams are reportedly considering hiring him. If Harbaugh does return to the professional level, Baker said that he was not sure how that would impact the NCAA's potential sanctions of Michigan or whether they would work with the NFL to try to hold him accountable in some other way. Harbaugh spoke at length on Tuesday morning about the biggest issue on Baker's plate in the coming year, the push to share more money with athletes. The coach said that he believes coaches and administrators in college sports should all be willing to take a 5 to 10% pay cut to provide more to the players. We're all robbing the same train, Harbaugh said before telling his players that they should try to form a union. Everybody is maximizing every single revenue source there is, but they're not sharing it with the talent. There's no business where that would ever fly. Baker last month introduced a proposal for rule changes that would allow schools several new avenues to share some of their revenue with athletes. When asked if comments from a prominent head coach like Harbaugh were positive for the sport, Baker said that he supported any coach using their significant platform to discuss the changes that they want to see. I think coaches have a platform that is earned and deserved, and they should feel free to talk about whatever they want to talk about, Baker said. Those are big-time jobs with big-time audiences and 
a big time impact. Alrighty, turning to college basketball now. This article by Kyle Bonadura, he's a staff writer for ESPN, came out yesterday, January 21st on ESPN.com from Stanford, California. Step aside, Coach K. Stanford's Tara Vanderveer is the new winningest basketball coach in NCAA history. The Stanford women's basketball team defeated Oregon State 65-56 to at Maples Pavilion yesterday to give Vanderveer her 1,203rd career victory, passing former Duke men's coach Mike Krzyzewski, otherwise known as Coach K. I'm very appreciative of all the great players that I've coached and the great places that I've been and the attention this brought to women's basketball, Vanderveer said. I'm not always really comfortable in the limelight, but I understand that that kind of goes with the job. Krzyzewski, who held the record since 2019, issued a statement congratulating Vanderveer after the game. Quote, this is a tremendous accomplishment for Tara Vanderveer, who was already one of the most accomplished coaches in the history of basketball. This is yet another milestone to add to an amazing legacy, end quote. And again, more important than all the astounding numbers and career accomplishments, he's positively impacted countless lives as a coach and a mentor. Tara remains a true guardian of our sport. Playing without star forward Cameron Brink, who suffered a knee injury in a win against Oregon on Friday, the Cardinal put aside a slow start to ensure Vanderveer would break the record in front of a home crowd. I told our team, I said, this is what it feels like winning a national championship. You're just so excited and you're so happy. I would like to build on this and just get better. Junior Kiki Irafen had a dominant performance for the Cardinal, finishing with a career-high 36 points and 12 rebounds, while Talana Lopolo added 14 more points. Lopolo said that there were some nerves playing in front of a packed gym and a sense of responsibility to win to allow their coach to be honored at home with two road games ahead. Roughly 30 of Vanderveer's former players, including Jane Appel, Jennifer Adzi, Ross Gold on Woody and Chine Ogowumiki were uh, among the 7,022 fans in attendance to celebrate the achievement. Former Stanford quarterback Andrew Luck was also on hand. After falling behind 29-28 early in the third, Stanford closed the quarter on a 22-14 run to take control going into the fourth quarter. Oregon State didn't seriously threaten the rest of the way. Krzyzewski was one of several dignitaries connected to Stanford or the sport of basketball who spoke in a video presentation to congratulate Vanderveer after the game. Others who spoke included former tennis player Billie Jean King, South Carolina's women basketball coach Don Staley, Golden State Warriors coach Stephen Kerr, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, longtime WNBA star Lisa Leslie, Ugwumiki and Aziz. Vanderveer, who is 70, is in her 38th season at Stanford after previous stints as the head coach at Idaho from 1978 to 80 and Ohio State from 1980 to 85. 
The five-time National Coach of the Year has led Stanford to three national titles in 1990, 92, and 2021. 14 Final Fours, 25 Pac-12 regular season titles, and 34 trips to the NCAA tournament. A 2011 inductee into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame, Vanderveer has accomplished more wins than 355 of the 360 NCAA Division I women's programs. In 1996, Vanderveer took a year off from coaching at Stanford to lead the U.S. women's national team to a gold medal at the Atlanta Olympics, which helped pave the way for the launch of the WNBA in 1997. On Saturday night, Vanderveer was discussing the wins record with former Stanford's men's coach Mike Montgomery, who spent 17 years on the farm and 14 other seasons as an NCAA head coach at Montana and at Cal. And the magnitude of the wins record really set in. Montgomery told me I was watching the men's game and he said, I'd have to coach 20 more years and win 25 games a year to reach 12.03. And she said, and I'm like, wow, that's a big number. For Vanderveer, her longevity is a tribute to the joy coaching brings her. I'd like to say that I've never felt that coaching basketball was a J-O-B job, she said. I can't wait to come into the gym. I love coming to practice, love coming to the games, and it's fun. I get to wear sneakers to practice and the games, and all of you, our fans, are so fantastic. She has coached two Naismith Player of the Year winners, 36th First Team All-Americans, and 19 Pac-12 Players of the Year, while nearly 40 of her players went on to play for USA Basketball. It remains to be seen how long Vanderveer will hold the record. UConn women's coach Gina Oramima, who is 69, the third winningest NCAA basketball coach, trails her by seven wins at 1,196. Whoever ends up with the record will likely come down to which of the two keeps coaching longer. I don't see Tara retiring anytime soon, Ozzy said. So the most wins by head coaches in NCAA history, uh, Tara Vanderveer with 1,203, Mike Krzyzewski, with 1,202, and then Gino Ararima at 1,196. Well, that hour went by quickly. Thank you for listening to this edition of Sports News Program. My name is Philip Bradbury. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303 786-7777.